Shalom, and welcome to another episode of Israel Policy Pod. I'm Eli Cohen. And I'm Evan Grottisman, and today we're joined by David Halpern, our Executive Director. Hey guys. What's very, up? very pleased to be uh, joining you. Thanks, thanks for having me. Excited to have me. you on. It's been, it's been a long time, <laughs> a long time, a long time coming. So, uh, this past week, uh, Israel Policy Forum sent a delegation to Israel and the West Bank to observe conditions on the ground and see how things are going on there. So, um, David, what were your major takeaways from that? Uh, a lot. Um, so, I think there are uh, the, the two major issues, obviously, are what's going on in Gaza and uh, what's going on, obviously, in the West Bank. Uh, vis-a-vis Gaza, I think the most surprising things that we heard, uh, number one, I, I think, is the, the, the freezing of U.S. Uh, financial assistance, the fact that uh, U.S. assistance to the Palestinians, all U.S. assistance, not merely uh, the aid that is earmarked to be withheld as part of the Taylor Force Act, which was passed a few months back, um, but actually security assistance, which has been widely popular in Washington, is currently being held by the White House. Uh, humanitarian assistance is being held and economic support uh, assistance is being held uh, all by, by the White House, which can release these funds at any time. And if it does not in the, in the coming weeks, uh, we're actually going to begin to see the unraveling and the dismantling of all U.S. assistance to the Palestinians uh, in the coming months. Uh, effectively removing any U.S. investment uh, on the, on the Palestinian side. So no, number one, that was that was that was critical. Is, there, uh, is yeah. there supposed to be a decision on this from the administration, or is it just kind of up in the air? It's up in the air. Um, uh, I think it, it is at uh, the the president's desk. Um, I think the issue is quite pressing in terms of the allocation of these funds, but it is it is on the president's desk. Uh, I should note that the IDF. Uh, and there's even been some reports that Israeli ministers themselves have been suggesting that uh, humanitarian assistance, particularly for Gaza, should go forward. Uh, there's even been concerns about the funds being held for UNRWA, despite its deep unpopularity on the Israeli side, recognition that uh, if these agencies shut down, we're going to see hundreds of thousands of kids without school, medical services declining on top of an already bleak situation with you know, 45% unemployment, 70% unemployed under the age of 30, four hours of electricity, undrinkable water, sewage situation that is uh, getting worse, being, uh, sewage being pumped into the ocean that actually affects Israel's uh, uh, beaches and territorial waters. Um, yeah, so, I think so that's it's already pretty, affected uh, Israel. Right. So first story is the need to get uh, assistance, particularly uh, into Gaza, and the fact that this money is being withheld at the same time that the U.S. is sending Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt to the Gulf countries to try to raise money at the same time that we're actually not investing. Uh, um, our policy director, Michael Coppola, wrote about this in his column last week, and I think it was particularly uh, of concern uh, when, with the folks that, that we met on our delegation. Um, the second uh, related to Gaza is obviously how this is connected to the security situation. We spent an afternoon, you know, which uh, we didn't intend to go see uh, the uh, fires, the balloons and the kites uh, causing these fires in the Gaza surroundings, but it's unavoidable. When you go to this area, um, the black stains, really, of, uh, of the fires are literally everywhere. And when we visited, we actually were there as they discovered a new fire. And we were there when firefighters were setting out a fire and saw two balloons flying above our heads. Uh, it is an absolute uh, constant uh, that this 
uh, already sort of um, uh, traumatized, frankly, a series of communities on the Gaza border that have dealt with rockets and mortars all these years are now dealing with this new threat. Uh, I think it was important for us to experience that and to see what they're dealing with uh, and how, frankly, this security situation right now could 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 spill out of control. We see these rockets being fired and so forth uh, uh, and retaliations about the Israelis that have been at a sort of simmering level. Uh, but there's definitely a danger that this could spill out into uh, another all-out war. Um, and I think it is absolutely tied to the deteriorating conditions uh, in the Strip. What impression did you get from the Israeli security establishment about uh, the U.S. administration withholding uh, all this aid to the Palestinians? Well, the IDF, it's been well reported, the IDF is, is the most vocal about uh, advocating certain uh, measures to stabilize the situation in Gaza, uh, whether it's uh, supporting um, permits for day laborers to come from Gaza to work in some of the surrounding communities, uh, or even um, to examine things like the port uh, that uh, outside of Gaza, which of course now Lieberman has looked at the Cyprus solution, which is quite quite interesting. Um, uh, but I think the... So that, let's, that would be a, a port in Cyprus that's purpose would be to bring aid into Gaza and it would go through inspections. Correct. That's right. In Cyprus? Yeah. As, and, and it would obviously, uh, Israel would be able to ensure that security checks and everything were met because it's outside of the Gaza uh, and right now, this is just a report that we know from Israel. It's been, su- yeah, I, 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 I think it's been uh, suggested so long as Hamas releases the... Uh, the four... Uh, uh, that's right, the, the remains of the two, and, and, and then the, the two, two that are being held captive, civilians. Hadar Goldin and Oran Shaul, and... Uh, By the way, that's an important part of the story, because many in the Israeli political establishment are actually opposed to going forward with some of these measures that the IDF has recommended, um, unless Hamas releases the remains of the two and then the, the, the two held, held captive. Um, so, you know, there's been a big political story here is that why should Israel take any measures to improve the conditions of Gaza so long as they're holding uh, holding uh, these Israelis uh, captive? Um, so that's a part of the story, but of course the major story here is the Palestinian Authority and its contribution to keeping Hamas in, or I'm sorry, to keeping Gaza uh, in its present condition as a way of, of trying to uh, uh, further pressure Hamas. Uh, the, pa- the Palestinian Authority is clearly presenting itself as far more the obstacle uh, than the asset in terms of uh, improving the electricity situation, the water situation, and the sewage situation, those three items being the most pressing that need to be addressed. Uh, and the PA uh, really needs to be pressed kicking and screaming to be part of the solution um, or alternative mechanisms need to be found. Um, this obviously presents a challenge. You want to improve humanitarian conditions without propping up the Hamas leadership in Gaza, um, but if the PA is simply unwilling or is actually contributing uh, to the breakdown and contributing to uh, the cutting of electricity and so forth, as they have been, uh, it's an incredibly complex knot uh, going on. But with the U.S. cutting off its aid to the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority cutting off contact with the Trump administrations and Kushner's seemingly off-the-cuff remarks about Abbas and the PA um, the other day in his interview with one of the Palestinian newspapers. And what kind of leverage does the U.S., let alone Israel, have to um, to get the PA to clean up its act in terms of how it's dealing with Gaza? Good question. Uh, I, I, frankly, I think that our removing our, our investment in the Palestinian side uh, absolutely reduces our leverage. Um, 
And I think that is uh, a major part of the concern um, when, when Jared Kushner and Jason Greenberg go to these Gulf countries and are trying to get them to increase their investments in Gaza, uh, and yet say, effectively, the policy is we support the Palestinians as long as we're not the ones paying for it. Uh, and I do think that that, that harms uh, uh, our leverage. But at the end of the day, let's, let's be real. The United States is still the dominant actor here. It's still the most... Uh, uh, the the most significant donor to UNRWA, uh, it still is the most significant political player vis-a-vis Israel, um, and there are mechanisms in ways that uh, that the Palestinians could be pressed in a more constructive manner rather than uh, pressed through interviews and tweets, uh, pressed on specific matters like this, um, and 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 rather than sort of the you know, right. It would just seem that if we, if we were actually a stakeholder in the Palestinian sector specifically still that we would have more leverage and that that leaves room for other actors to enter the fray. I mean, you saw the other day the United Kingdom pledged um, about $50 million to UNRWA, which is not, doesn't make them the single, you know, dominant actor, but that means that UNRWA and, you know, if the Palestinian Authority starts getting aid from other sources, um, can you know, outsource to other sources and not have to be so dependent on the direction that the U.S. administration takes. Look, I think that's right, but we should also recognize that the U.S. assistance is in these three buckets. It's humanitarian, it's economic support, and it's it's security. Right. Um, and it's not going for PA salaries, which is really European aid. Um, and now we've obviously put conditions on aid, which is being held currently for the Taylor Force Act, something that that I think uh, makes sense and is logical, but uh, it's absolutely a question of of where we have leverage given where we're at in the relationship with the Palestinians, not only the withholding aid, the the verbal attacks, and obviously the situation with Jerusalem in which the Palestinians are simply not even prepared to have a conversation. Right, but also Uh, in in terms of where where the aid goes, all the money is fungible, and even if the the Palestinians can still get along without without the U.S. aid and don't need to blame the United States, they can certainly try and make a case um, with the salaries, even though it's not U.S. aid, because they can say, well, this, you know, we were cut off here, and money is fungible, even if that's not how it plays out, I think they could... No, I think think there are... you know, U.S. assistance to the Palestinians is watched very, very carefully, and and is um, there's actually nothing that's just straight going to the Palestinians. So USAID right. is going for specific NGOs and specific projects and right. programs. Yeah. Nothing actually goes directly. Right. No, I, I understand. Other than, other than the, the the security assistance. No, I understand that. I'm saying that's the line that they're going yeah. to take, even though it's not yeah. true. Yeah. I also think yeah. it's a, an important indicator is that you had Jared Kushner and Jason Greenblatt in the region meeting with in Jordan, King Abdullah meeting with. Netanyahu completely almost bypassing the, the Palestinians. Well, it's, like, to, to, to be fair, the Palestinians won't won't answer the phone. They won't meet with the Americans, even if they tried at the moment. And I think that's something that's largely uh, political posturing on their part, and I think it's ultimately sure. counterproductive. Yeah. But um, It is counterproductive, but also it has, it kind of almost, I mean, we have this thing about Netanyahu not meeting Abbas, Abbas not willing to meet Netanyahu, and now you kind of get the U.S. and Israel on one side not willing to meet with, like, right. and Abbas not wanting to meet with the U.S. or Israel. We talked about Gaza, David. Can we, let's talk a, a bit about uh, the West Bank. What impressions did you get with what's happening there? Look, uh, you have a Palestinian scene that continues to be dominated uh, with conversation about who is going to succeed Abbas. Uh, Abbas recently underwent uh, a number of uh, 
uh, procedures uh, uh, for various health conditions that have sort of sparked this conversation uh, once again. Um, the Palestinian-Israeli security cooperation continues to hold um, despite all of the uh, uh, all of the tensions, and I think it's likely to hold. It clearly serves the Palestinians' interests uh, as well as the Israelis uh, at the moment. Um, but I think the the clear scene on the on the on the in the West Bank is waiting to see two things: will there be a war in Gaza? How will the West Bank respond? Thus far, as long as that security cooperation is maintained strong. Um, I don't expect the West Bank, uh, I don't expect we're going to see sort of wide-scale protests and violence. The Palestinian Authority has done uh, uh, a pretty significant job in clamping down on any uh, any of those sorts of, of gatherings um, and has really become quite authoritarian uh, in its uh, approach to governing. Uh, Are they worried the about Bank. another round of violence in Gaza? Are they worried? Are they worried? It's a great question. Um, I think that the the Palestinian Authority um, does not lose sleep at night over the notion that Hamas might take a significant blow, uh, and I I, I, I I think that is certainly the case. Um, I think there is sympathies on the Palestinian street clearly for uh, those in Gaza, um, but yes, I think the Palestinian Authority is it does not have the same incentive. You're going to say something? No, I was going to say. I feel like though it's a, it's a little bit of a catch though because the prospect of another war could either be a distraction for the people living under Palestinian authority governance in the West Bank from the increasing authoritarianism of the PA and, and corruption, or it could be a catalyst for more um, dissatisfaction with the PA because of its association with Israel. If Israel is the you know seen as the aggressor in that situation, that's right. But you know, I would also think that cutting salaries and uh, you know cutting the electricity to Gaza would also harm the the standing in the PA, particularly in Gaza, but also in the West Bank. And yet they've continued to do so. So um, I, I agree with you, but I I I, uh, I think the PA at the moment is um, uh, attempting to do all it can to weaken Hamas. Uh, while ensure its own uh, security, and they're waiting to see what may happen in succession. I still don't think there's any clear sense of how that is going to play itself out. But I, I think the other thing I, I, it's important to note on the West Bank is the annexation question. Um, uh, I think that we found many on the Israeli side, I thought, to be somewhat flat-footed, to put it, uh, uh, to, to find a phrase. When you say uh, on the Israeli side, you mean... I on mean, the Israeli left? On the Israeli left, and even on the Israeli center. Um, I think our... our uh, uh, I, I'm concerned there's not enough urgency being placed to the danger of annexation, uh, and particularly uh, limited annexation, uh, the beginning steps of applying Israeli sovereignty to Area C, uh, and frankly to all of Area C, which is Neftali Bennett's uh, a really political program. But to begin with sections of Gush Etzion and Maldi Adumim, to begin the process by which uh, it's going to be much more difficult to begin to conceive of a return to, to meaningful negotiations on a territorial swap. Right, well, I, I think people have been looking for the wrong signposts for annexation because it's not going to be just one big grab. It's not going to be one, That's right. you know, Crimea-style, just take all of the territory at once and integrate it at once because they don't, right. they don't want the Palestinian cities anyways. Right. In area A, 
and they they haven't been talking about that. They've been the the Bennett plan has always been area C settlement blocks, Jordan Valley. But also yeah. for for us to get there, I mean, I th- think maybe some one of the reasons that people are kind of flat footed is because we had haven't even seen this deal that's being talked about. Yeah, and I think the expectation or like the fear is that the deal will be presented. It will be right away. The Palestinians will will flat out reject it, and then Israel may get a green light to do this kind of gradual annexation. And I, I think there may be, I mean, I think we're still a few months away from all these developments, if we even see a deal. Yeah, I agree with that completely. Um, and we'll see. Uh, I obviously uh, think that we, uh, we in, in this room, on this podcast, uh, would agree that um, going for broke in the ultimate deal right now is a, uh, is, is, is a mistake. Um, that, uh, and I think most people would agree that if you look at what's going on on the Palestinian side and the Israeli side, uh, it, it, this is not exactly conducive for a conflict-ending agreement that in any way is going to be implementable or sustainable. Um, and that much of the goal of promoting this ultimate deal may actually be to serve political ends and not policy ends. And that's something that I think is, is deeply uh, concerning if we're just finding ourselves back into a cycle of an Israeli-Palestinian blame game uh, without any real anything to actually improve the dynamics on the ground, um, and I think we should be focused on on those things on what what can be done to improve dynamics on the ground instead of uh, throwing this hail mary pass, uh, uh, thinking that we're going to actually uh, get something out of out of uh, uh, the current political situation. So I think you've laid out a lot of reasons for that can make most of us, I mean, kind of depressed. Um, about the entire situation, can you way. can you give us some hope for optimism? Something that uh, maybe something that you encountered that made you a bit optimistic. That so uh, I, I, I have to say, you guys kind of know. I, I am uh, I like to be blunt about the obstacles. So first and foremost, we have to be really really honest and not be flat footed about those obstacles. Uh, there are real yeah. genuine threats, and if we're going to overcome them, we got to be honest about them and, and formulate plans to overcome them. Um, and as you guys all know and are working on uh, the next days uh, and weeks ahead, we're going to begin talking about 50 uh, steps that can be taken before the ultimate deal. 50 steps Israelis, Palestinians, uh, Americans, Arab states uh, can be supporting and encouraging that would actually improve security, economic, political conditions on the ground uh, and that need a whole lot more attention and support than they're currently getting so that we can actually have a conversation of what's possible rather than these this, this ultimate deal turning into a, uh, a failure or, 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 or a fantasy. But if I'm going to give you hope, um, I think it's uh, uh, important to, sh- to, to say, show that, um, look at the polls. You know, it's funny. I, recently, we saw the last poll that showed that it was something 48% of Israelis, 49% of Palestinians support two states. The first time that we saw under 50%. It was under 50%, but it was still overwhelmingly a plurality in both societies, right. that, that there no other solution Look, can I don't close. know who these 50% are. Who are these 49% who have seen so much violence, who have seen so many political leaders come and go, uh, particularly, uh, you know, I shouldn't say come and go because we've had the same leaders for a while, but uh, I've seen the, the political hopes come and go. Uh, we should have seen American uh, peacemakers come and go and, and the failures of the peace process um, uh, time and time again, and yet still believe that the only viable path uh, is with two states uh, living side by side. Um, and I think that if we have leadership 
on the Israeli side, on the Palestinian side, and the American side, um, that that 50% will grow once again. Um, and it is a testament to how resilient the goal of two states is, that we still have this plurality that you just described of, and that um, I think very quickly will become a majority if we had the leadership necessary to, to promote it. And I think now's the time uh, to do all we can, those of us who want to preserve that goal, to make sure that we keep our eye on preserving that possibility for when those, those, those political leaders uh, emerge. Right. Um, I mean, you look at the inverse of it also is how little support the other options get, how little support, like, um, the idea of, a, you know, a binational state or an undemocratic one state get on both sides. Yeah. And I think that's, I think, you know, you're talking about the threat of annexation. I don't think we can lose sight of it. But on the other hand, I think the reason that it hasn't come, been put to a vote yet, um, or, you know, come up in full force is because I think the margin is still too thin, even for, for people like Bennett. It's, you know, it's getting there, and it's not something you want to lose sight of and, 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 and become complacent about, because right. I think people are getting complacent about it. But, but, but I think there's a difference between the one-state solution and, and annexing, like, and, and area, area C, and the creeping step-by-step -step annexation, which I think, in isolation, could get quite a lot of support. Right, because uh, th those things can be sold as part of the Israeli consensus. They yes, can, you know, it's Gush Etzion and th things that absolutely. people think of as part of, as just part of, of, of sovereign Israel. Correct. But but at the same time, I don't think you're not gonna. I don't think you're gonna get a, a, a national. You're not gonna get a. I don't think you're gonna get like a Bennett as prime minister right away. Maybe maybe ten years down the line, which isn't too long. But like you know, um, you know, I don't think you're gonna get someone him like like him right away because I think the margin for those sorts of ideas is still too a little yeah. too thin for them to be. There's secure. a lot of speculation, but I also think it's important to point out that. Netanyahu, say what you will, he's not a... I think he has shown that he's not the biggest advocate of all these annexation plans, and he's keeping a lot of his uh, people uh, in his coalition in check. Um, well, his first priority is, like, self-preservation. Of course. Point. So I think the only way which he, like, something may... One thing may lead to another, and Israel takes the path toward this gradual creeping annexation would have to be if he's really forced forced into it uh, politically in order to ensure his his political survival. Yeah, but I mean, as you guys know, I think this is an issue that we're going to focus a lot of attention on because there is such an un, uh, a lack of understanding about yeah. what it actually means uh, to begin to apply Israeli sovereignty to these areas, whether it's uh, limited or, frankly, what it actually means from a security and economic and political standpoint to begin the process of a, of, of a one state. Um, and I think it's important for us in the two-state community uh, to understand exactly what the consequences are so we can make the case uh, about why it's so dangerous. The, the West Bank is still governed under the, 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 the basis of the Oslo uh, Accords, uh, areas A, B, and C. Uh, area C being 60% of the West Bank, B, 18, I believe, or 22. A is 18 or 22. Uh, A, the cities, B, the Palestinian villages, and C is... Uh, nature reserves, IDF bases, settlements, and the Jordan Valley predominantly, uh, and much of the agriculture lands as well, I think. Uh, uh, so the, the, the real uh, uh, question is Area C, uh, and how, uh, to what extent will, will Israel begin to treat areas of Area C as full sovereign territory? Now, the, there are some on the Palestinian side who will argue that you know, annexation doesn't matter because Israel's already treating Area C right. as for full Israeli sovereignty. But there's a significant difference in terms of 
um, uh, uh, demonstrating, you know, once uh, uh, once once something is is annexed, um, uh, it's it's more difficult, I, uh, I believe, to uh, to really get it back to the negotiating table. And it, right. I mean, obviously, Jerusalem is the perfect example of that, uh, where the future of Jerusalem is going to be that much more difficult because of Israel's uh, applying sovereignty into the East Jerusalem. Right. So. You know the th the threat on the table right now is that is that area C, which like the rest of the West Bank, is still technically um, under the jurisdiction of the military governor, um, even though civilian civilian laws go through the military governor to be applied um, and generally go through. This would just have civilian law be applied blanket the way it is in sovereign Israel, and it, it would it would you know really blur the distinction even more than it's blurred today because because like you said, David. Um, for a lot of people, especially on the Palestinian side, but also in Israel, it's becoming a distinction without a difference. But but politically and diplomatically, it, it would complicate things. Um, but given given that bleak outlook, um, you know, we have those. Um, there are things that can be done in the interim. Of course, it's I mean, and being... also think about it. We're at. I mean, if this is really like the baseline, like this is probably. I mean, it, it could probably get worse. But I mean, I would think that in terms of prospects for Tuesday's solution. We're at probably the worst place we've been in, in a long time, and to think that we have still like, near like a fifty percent, fifty percent of populations of both societies support the solution when prospects are this low. So I mean, the point of these these fifty things that the Palestinians, that the Israelis, that the U.S. and that other Arab neighbors can encourage to be done. I mean, it, it can really only grow from there. And if we, we talk about, I mean, restoring hope and restoring uh, faith between the sides, I mean, I think that would do, do wonders for, for the situation. So maybe, David, can you talk a bit more about what kinds of things we should be looking for with these, uh, these 50? Okay, I think, uh, to your point, it's either, we're either heading in the direction of a two-state reality or we're heading in the direction of a one-state reality. Uh, and I think the 50 things that we're going to be talking about are all about advancing, preserving, uh, heading towards that, that two-state reality uh, before we start talking about issues like refugees, uh, Jerusalem, uh, settlements, and, and coming to this sort of uh, uh, an agreement on these final status negotiation issues uh, that these two leaders are simply not going to come to an agreement on. Um, what are specific things that can happen? from the security, economic, humanitarian, political perspectives, uh, and we'll outline those in great detail. Um, on Gaza, uh, we've already talked about the most pressing problem, uh, addressing electricity, water, and sewage. Um, I think that is paramount, and that is very much tied uh, to some of the U.S. assistance uh, and releasing some of that those, those funds. Um, I think uh, uh, that's especially critical on the security side. Uh, we're talking about uh, the, the, the route and completion of the security barrier, um, particularly uh, in, around Male Dumim and, and the Gush Etzion region, um, that would ensure uh, uh, security. By the way, there was like a, a shooting attempt just a few days ago uh, in an area that, that, that suffers because it, it does not have any sort of uh, physical impediment. We're talking about increasing worker permits for both West Bank and allowing a pilot project for Gazans to begin working in those Israeli border communities that wish to have those workers. Uh, many of those border communities maintain relations with their former workers and are prepared to have those workers return uh, to those agricultural fields. Um, so 
I don't want to give them all away here. Uh, they'll have to go to our uh, website, social media, uh, where we're going to have resources on all these individual steps uh, with great uh, detail and, and in some cases maps and some cases podcasts, perhaps. Right. But so, uh, uh, but um, the, the focus here is on tangible progress, not unrealistic uh, uh, goal-seeking like this, this ultimate uh, deal talk. Right, and, and there are steps that are there to improve the security situation, as you mentioned, the, the terror threat, the, the economic situation, and also more manageable political steps. And, and, and all of them, they intersect. Like, you know, you can divide them up into different categories, but, um, you know, you mentioned... They're, they're more manageable political steps, but they're absolutely requiring political leadership. It's not going to be right. easy for any of these steps, but it's frankly impossible to see the current political leadership necessary to conclude a deal. Um, and again, the, the, the test is whether we're heading in the right direction um, towards reducing tensions, improving security, improving economic conditions, or we're heading in the, in the opposite direction. Uh, and right, that's which the is, biggest concern. Right, I, I actually wanted to focus on two of the steps you mentioned because yeah. they, they really highlight the intersection of the security, um, security requirements and the political complications. You mentioned uh, completing the barrier. People know about the security barrier between Israel and the West Bank. What people, I think a lot of people don't realize is that there are these gaps um, through which um, militants, terrorists, have been able to pass through from the West Bank into Israel. And one of the reasons that the, the gaps are there is because the leadership in the, the settler community tends to oppose them because putting up a security barrier could be treated as a border. Um, and they also and, like de facto limit the expansion right, of specific right that's what I meant with the, with the border that that it, that it stops saying Oded Revivi's the the foreign envoy of uh, the Yesha Council's the mayor, mayor, mayor of Efrat also um, he is one of the biggest opponents of the security barrier even even though his community is like right right on in this like you know right. border zone because it like you said Eli it, it limits the expansion of the settlement so like you said David also that. You know that would require mediating that point of view and that um, you know strong ideological stand by the settler community with the the real security requirement. Because there have been a lot of you mentioned it, that was an attempted attack, the the shooting. Yes. Um, but there have been the the Sorona Market uh, Max Brenner attack was I think through the the Gush Etzion gap. Correct. And um, the, the, the the kidnapping the murder in twenty fourteen like. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a number of examples, but I, I and yes, there, there are these steps are all intertwined. Um, you know, it's not only terrorists coming through those gaps, it's also those who are entering Israel illegally to work, which is why we need to increase, uh, we need to encourage the fact that uh, the, the increase the number of work permits to Palestinians who are appropriately vetted uh, by the Israelis coming from the West Bank. Um, and there are a number of others. I mean, obviously, we're, we're talking about 50 here, but I think we probably could get to. A lot more, um, and these are the kinds of tangible, specific uh, things uh, that we need to be watching. We need to be advocating. We need to be pressing for uh, if we want to keep uh, what Eli is looking for hope uh, for the, the future of a two-state solution. Um, it's not going to be in getting the parties to agree on uh, Jerusalem or taking Jerusalem off the table, as the president said, uh, it's going to be uh, trending, turning the trend, which right now is a steady slide toward a one-state reality, uh, and I would argue uh, a reality that threatens Israel's future as a secure Jewish democratic state, uh, we need to arrest that slide 
Uh, and that starts by tomorrow doing something different than we're doing today. Instead of just talking, we should be advocating specific steps. And that's what this is about. David Halpern, Israel Policy Forum's Executive Director. Thank you for joining. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can learn more about Israel Policy Forum online at our website, www.israelpolicyforum.org, and on our social media outlets on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Telegram. Thanks for joining us.